and asleep um, instead of uh, following you with with our eyes open and our hearts um, just overflowing with the gospel of grace. Just Lord, please take that stuff away from us today. Um, you know, help us to ignore the little buzz from our phone or the little um, tug in the back of the head about lunch or or whatever. Just whatever it is that draws our attention away from. Just focusing our eyes on you, just take it from us. And I, I pray, Lord God, that you would give me grace to bring your word this morning, to unpack what you have for us, to, to share the gospel faithfully, uh, and, and just, just be with me, be with the folks who are here today, help them to hear your word. Pray that you would touch their hearts and their minds, that they would come to know you more, that they would um, experience your presence, that that anything that needs to be uh, convicted, like with a big bright light shining on it, that it would find that place and they would, um, you know, turn away from, from the wrong paths, from sin, from stumble, from error or whatever, Lord. Just help them to come to know you more through hearing the gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, if you do not have an outline, which nobody should have an outline because I forgot to print them. Um, I did them early. I set up to print them. My printer at the house wasn't working, so I printed them. I was going to print them from my office, and there was all kinds of trouble with it, and it has been a very technologically overwhelming and frustrating morning, so nobody got outlines because I got them during the songs. And my beautiful 11-year-old assistant will hand out copies of the outline if you raise your hand and would indicate that you would need one or a pencil because you would like to take notes. Um, You can say happy birthday to her as she comes by or compliment her on her lovely new dress. Um, So as she's doing that, I'm going to dive into our text for our our, uh, message this morning. We're going to be talking about conflict, uh, which is fun. Everybody loves conflict. Um, That's why it's on the news so much. And that's why we look for it on Facebook so we can get mad, right? Like, it is everywhere around us. There is money to be made on it. Um, Before I do that, I am going to share a bit of a story. And actually, this is Gabe's fault, so you can thank him. Uh, He and I, like, I went out to get coffee, and, and there was almost none left. And Gabe had coffee, and he very sheepishly acknowledged that he, you know, he said, oh, I can share it with you, but he had pumpkin spice, mixed in and so (laughs) and I I do not care for pumpkin spice coffee it's because I have a Y chromosome I don't (laughs) I'm kidding I'm sorry Gabe I I love you I I'm just not a fan I think it's overdone Um, but as we were talking I I uh, we got talking about pumpkin pie and I'm a firm believer that pumpkin pie is a food product most people do not like um, oh, but I have pumpkin pie every year. I look forward to it at Thanksgiving. Oh, my gosh. I. But what we really look forward to is, what is it, Gabe? Yes. We want the whipped cream on top because it is socially unacceptable to eat whipped cream straight out of the tub. <laughs> uh, we must put a mound of whipped cream on the pie and eat it, Right. Um, and Gabe told me, and, and I think more honest people in the world do not exist than to say, when I was a kid, I used to just eat the whipped cream and put more on. Because the whipped cream is the good part. Um, and as we dive into our text today, we are going to be 
Uh, doing our best not to stomp on your feet too hard. If it is that way, it is not for me um, because I'm trying to be nice today. Uh, but we're going to be talking about the whipped cream and the pie. Um, following Jesus is a big, difficult, controversial, challenging, lifelong not just in my head, not just on Sunday morning, feet on the ground, moving forward, life commitment. Got it? Nobody's watching the Olympics right now, right? Because, but, like, the Olympics are a great example of this. Anybody who makes it to that level of Olympic competition, except for the curlers, they have to, like, like devote their entire lives and every waking hour to becoming that. And they have to take on an entire lifestyle. It is not just the whipped cream of glory and the win of the moment. It is the hard part, the pie that you have to eat, right? Um, and so as we get into that, like that is kind of the metaphor I'm going to work with. That's my analogy. Um, and I'm going to share a story. This is actually where I was going to start, but it was less funny. Um, this is from Kierkegaard. This is uh, either or. Uh, and Kierkegaard is wonderful for this sort of analogy. Uh, A fire broke out backstage in a theater. The clown came out to warn the public, and they thought it was a joke and applauded. He repeated it to the acclaim, or the acclaim was even greater. I think that's how the world will come to an end, to general applause from wits who believe it is a joke. Um, Why did I share that? Because our world continually shifts in the direction. I see... I think we're going to see some of that in the text here today, but our world continually shifts in the direction of comfortable, easy, fun, feel good. And there are parts of following Jesus that are not compatible with that, right? And, and we're going to talk about that bit today. We're going to talk about how um, oftentimes when folks get up and they say, guys, pay attention to this. It's a big deal. We don't take it that seriously. You know, it's, it's the clown on the stage making a joke instead of, guys, pay attention, this is a big deal. Um, the big idea for our message, we're going to be in Acts 16. If you want to look in your Bibles, uh, it will be on the screen, but I would love it if you looked in your Bibles. Uh, the main point, the big thing is the gospel will make us uncomfortable, and the world we live in will also be uncomfortable. The consequences of that are sometimes a part of how God grows us most. Everybody with me? Like, I'm not trying to preach an uncomfortable message, but the gospel at its core is kind of uncomfortable. So let's have a look at 16. All right, um, little background. Jeremy preached the preceding section. Everybody remembers that because we were all here and wide awake and haven't forgotten. Um, it was the story of uh, Paul, like when he first arrives in Philippi, we're working through Acts, and this is Paul's first missionary journey. He goes to Philippi, and it is a town where there are so few Jewish people that they can't have a synagogue. And so he goes to the river, and he like listens to the service, and then he preaches the gospel to the folks there, and a gal named Lydia... Uh, and her entire family, they're a wealthy family, like they convert, and they become sort of the core of the church in Philippi. And so when you read Philippians, that's these guys. And Paul wasn't there very long, but we do know that Paul loved this church. He talks to them and describes them in ways that we don't see in any of his other letters. He's got a particular affection and a particular love for these people that comes about just in a really instant way. He's only there for a little while, and they chase him out of town. Now, 
starting in verse 16. So he's just, we, we, have, um, we have where they are uh, doing their service out at the, at the river. He converts Lydia. Um, he continues to go there and teach and preach. And Paul was, you know, Paul was a Jewish man. He was a student of Gamaliel who is like the grandchild of um, Hillel, like one of the greatest rabbis in, his, you know, in the Jewish like history. And, and like, so Paul is a man of, of letters. He is a man who is well-educated. He goes and he teaches and he teaches Jesus, but he teaches it in context of the gospel or, or of the Old Testament and the Jewish system. And he is teaching them good stuff. Like there's a, probably a following beginning at this point. And so he is on his way there once, and we don't know how long he's been in the community. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, by the way, we is, um, since this is the book of Acts, this would be Luke who wrote this, right? Um, and we know Silas is there, we know Paul is there, and at least one other guy whose name escapes me at the moment. But there's a crowd of folks on their way in, and like to the place of prayer, like the where the, the synagogue formerly, where the synagogue met. Um, and we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Now, real quick, so soothsaying or fortune-telling were super common in the ancient world, right? And if you did it well, you got rich. Generals did not go to war without a soothsayer in their, like, advisors. They would talk to him before they left. They would talk to him while they were in the field. They would check with him. If you read some of the ancient accounts of battles or stories, they are constantly, all right, get the, get the fortune teller over here. What's going on? I'm, I'm currently reading the Iliad, and it is like every other page. Oh, look, a crow. What, soothsayer, what does that crow mean? And they would, like, have a whole conversation in the middle of a battle about what this stupid crow was there for. Um, and, and that sort of thing, like this is how the ancients viewed the world. And so fortune tellers, man, that was business, right? And if you happen to be a slave owner and you own someone who could do this, there was bank in that, right? And like there's investment because you had to buy this person and, you know, you had all of this other stuff. But these guys are making money off of this. And this little girl, right, because it says a little girl, little like female slave, um, she follows them or they run into her. Um, let me see. I want to make sure I got, oh, uh, real quick. There's kind of an interesting little bit. This is almost trivia, but I think it is interesting. And I think it is worth pointing out. She earned a great deal of money, uh, for owners by, oh, she predicted the future. Um, the spirit by which she predicted the future is actually like a word. And I am not going to say it because my Greek is awful and I don't remember it. Um, but it is the word that we get the word python from because the ancient greeks they had this oracle at delphi right not delphi computers not oracle software but there was an oracle which is a place you could go and pay to get a fortune told you could go there this oracle at delphi was very famous it is still famous today and there was a story that there was a python placed there by one of the goddesses and it was there to protect the fortune teller um, until another god came along and killed it and took it over and all this other stuff. But like that Python thing is associated with fortune telling. Now, here's a really cool other thing. There are preachers who will take that, um, that, that word, which eventually becomes Python, and they've turned it into this elaborate demonic 
thing that you can be possessed by that squeezes the life out of you and all this other stuff. And it is about a half a percent biblical, and the rest is very exciting. But it's not substantive. But they make money preaching that kind of thing. So it doesn't matter if it's substantive, it's exciting. Right? Um, and why I'm talking about that, we're going to come back around to, I hope, if I remember. Um, but it fits into all of this. So this young lady is giving advice and direction, and she is um, of significant value because she is a fortune teller and apparently good at it. And she showed, or she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, we're going to really dig into this a little bit because this is something... Like, this story is almost a perfect repeat of what we did in Bible study on Monday. Not planned, not intentional, but, like, perfect. Just amazing, right? Because it was the next verse in Matthew that we did um, for the men's Bible study on Monday. By the way, there's a men's Bible study on Monday that's really great and fun. You should come check it out. Um, and sometimes you get a preview of the sermon. Um, <laughs> And so this, this, this spirit speaks through her and says, hey, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, she is not preaching the gospel. Actually, she is saying the truth, but neither of these phrases are unusual to the pagan world. And so when you say Most High God, that is actually a phrase that was commonly applied to Zeus. Right. It was commonly applied to all kinds of like entities and deities. Zeus is like the number one in that, though. He is the most high, the king of the gods. But it's not about him. It is about Jesus. Right. It's about Yahweh. It is about like the triune God, about the Jewish God. Like that is what this is about. And the way to be saved, like the phrase in Greek was just unbelievably common. Everybody used it. Um, and so she's saying something that could be said of almost any ancient pagan religion, right? Um, I think uh, Caesar, uh, the Caesar that is Caesar at this point, I don't remember which one it was off the top of my head. Sorry, he referred to himself as Savior sometimes. There are a lot of the gods who were, were considered to be saviors. And it didn't have the same meaning or connotation, but it was common in religious talk. And so she's using a very common religious phrase. And that is probably why... She kept this up for many days. So every time they come through town, she follows them yelling, Hey, these guys are the servant of the Most High God. And, and they're going to tell you, you know, they're telling you the way to be saved. And she like breaks away from whatever she's doing. And she follows them and she announces and yells and hollers and carries on. And finally, finally, Paul became so annoyed. Every parent in the room feels this. Right? <laughs> Oh, my gosh, I don't want to hear about Minecraft. No, I'm sorry, that was me projecting. Um, but finally, Paul becomes so annoyed. She does it for so long. Paul literally becomes annoyed. He is not doing something. Like, it, it's weird that he's annoyed, and that's what prompts this. I, I wrestled with that and went back and forth, and it is just weird to me that this is the way this worked out. He got annoyed. He turns around and said to the Spirit... Or so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Now, um, this is not going to work for hearing about Minecraft. Not that I've tried it. I mean, it might. <laughs> but 
probably that's not a particular demon that's possessed your children, their own kind of demonic. Um, but this event actually resembles other encounters in Scripture. And, and that's where, like, this event, specifically this demon possession thing, and, like, okay, I, if y'all want me to do, like, a big, long demon possession talk or talk about spirits and all this, we could do that, like, at a day that isn't today. Write down questions somewhere. There are note cards in the back in the basket. You could write it on your little outline and tear off the corner and say, hey, can you explain this? Um, I, I do believe in demons. I do believe in demon possession. But I also believe it's sometimes something we focus on so heavily so we don't have to talk about the truth of Scripture because it's kind of the whipped cream, right? It's exciting. It's fun. It is a lot more fun to hear about whipped cream than to hear about my own sin, right? Josh is nodding heavily, so he's either paying attention and really convicted by the text or he's thinking about whipped cream. Um, so the other spot we're going to talk about specifically is the one that we did in Bible study on Monday. And this one's kind of funny in a lot of ways, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke have accounts of it. I'm sticking with the Matthew because it's what made me think of this. And when he came to the other side, so they've crossed the Sea of Galilee to the country of the Gadarenes, which is part of like the, uh, the, the, the ten cities, I forget the Greek name. Um, but like there are ten pagan cities or Gentile cities on the other side of the river, and those ten cities were like sort of Roman colonies or whatever. Um, but they were very few Jews in that area. It was a much more Gentile-dominated area. Two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. So these guys are like hanging out in the graveyard. Um, and the graveyard, like Jewish people didn't generally go in the graveyard if they could help it because it made you ritually unclean, right? You couldn't like touch dead bodies without having to go to the temple to be washed um, or to go through like a series of things at home or whatever to make yourself clean again. And so, excuse me, Jewish folks generally avoided um, the tombs. But these guys went there because they went to the unclean places. And you couldn't like this pathway had become well known, like don't go that way, the crazy guys are there, the demon-possessed guys. Um, and so they would stay there and they would come out and they would harass people. Um, and so these guys are so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us? O son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them and the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Now, part of the way that we know that this is a Gentile area is pigs, right? Like pigs were unclean. Jewish people didn't raise pigs. They didn't eat them. They didn't touch them if they could help it. If you had pigs, it was considered pretty shameful. Like it was low level humanity at that point. And so like, like the pigs over here, they're like, oh, Throw us into them. Jesus has not said a word up until this point. And he said to them, go, which isn't all that different from what Paul said. Paul said, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And he says, hey, just go, get. Again, you can try saying in the name of Jesus, go away to your children. Oh, come on. Uh, (laughs) um, He says, go. So they came out. And went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Um, why do I point this out? Because the parallel there is 
these, these demon-possessed men come running out and they're like, hey, you're the son of the Most High God. Get away from us. Um, and the general idea here is that evil, like, is terrified of God. And as well it should be, right? Like, that is the truth. And it doesn't stop with the demons because the phrase they use the phrase they use turns up again later in Matthew, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, this is all happening. I'm, trust me, I know where I'm going. This is not me being weird or random. I, just random. I'm not being random. <laughs> so the pigs go throw themselves in the water. Now we're going to go back to Acts, right? When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrate and said, These men are Jews. They are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept and practice. There are three accusations there. First off, they are Jews, right? Ain't all that many Jews in this community, and like, Jews were not a well-loved circle in most Gentile areas, right? Like, it wasn't necessarily the case. They had mixed feelings about them. Sometimes they liked them because they tended to be pretty honest. And they had a particular way of living that some Romans found very attractive. Um, so there's that. But on the other side of it, they were a little weird, and they didn't do things the way that they thought they should. The Jews actually, as a people group in the ancient world, had their own laws. Like the Romans applied special laws to the Jews that protected them and that provided for them and prevented them from acting in certain ways. And that turns up here. So these men are Jews. So, like, we don't like them. None of us like them. They are different. And by throwing that out first, he has already thrown the court against them. They are throwing our city into an uproar, meaning they're making problems around here, right? This is the important line, by the way. This is the important line. This is the important line. Pay attention. This is the important line. They're throwing our city into an uproar. And then the final accusation they make by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Why were the guys mad at Paul? He cast a demon out of a little girl. That's it. What do they, like, where did they mention that? They didn't. You know why? Court ain't going to do nothing about that. They're ignoring the miracle. They're ignoring the exceptional event. And they're accusing them of everything else in the world because they're losing money. That's it. Oh my gosh, this little girl is healed. Nobody can do that. How did they do it? Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Nope. Hey, 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 how am I going to make money? I have to go to work now. I'd be mad too. So we go on. It was, by the way, real quick, it was illegal for Jewish first century Jews to proselytize Roman citizens. Jews were not allowed to preach their religion to their neighbors. And that is that last accusation, is the law specifically that they're breaking. And so they need a law broken in order to do anything about it. That's the deal. You break a law, we respond. Um, they're Jews, so we don't like them. They're, throwing, they're creating problems, so we need to do something about it. And this is the law they broke. That is the legal argument that we're presented with. 
The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. By the way, excavators have found um, that in the market in Philippi, this is really neat, I read about this this morning, you have a corner space where the magistrate would rule things, right? And they had a little thing I can't say the word, it is a Latin word, but it was a little symbol of authority. It was a bunch of sticks wrapped around an axe, right? And that was the symbol of Roman authority. And what it meant was, we can kill you or we can punish you. That's it. That's what it meant. Kind of funny, huh? And what they did to Paul and Silas was they stripped them their clothes off. They tied them probably to a post or a rock or something. They pulled a handful of these rods out of that bundle and they beat them with them. The alternate option they had was to take the axe out and end things. You could not bring that symbol into Rome. If you went into the city itself, you had to take the axe out because it was not legal for the courts to just kill a Roman citizen. They had rights. By the way, this fits because Paul was... A Roman citizen. Paul could have said at any time, I'm a Roman citizen, you need to stop. He didn't. He went through the punishment, he went through the abuse on purpose. He chose that. We're going to come around to that next week, right? But understand, these guys, they didn't do anything wrong. They're accused of something they didn't do, and then they are beaten publicly with rods and they were thrown into prison. So they're severely flogged. Illegal for a Roman citizen to be severely flogged without a trial. And then they were thrown into prison, and the jailer commanded to guard them carefully. When he received this order, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, the inner cell would be in the middle and down. This would be the dungeon. It is the nasty prison, right? It is, it is the place you don't want to be. And being put in stocks, like y'all picture that, you know, I, I should have a set at my house. But that's not what stocks were in the ancient world. The goal was they would put your legs and your hands in it, and they would stretch you out in weird ways so that you were uncomfortable, and then they would leave you for 18 hours. Um, if you can imagine being stuck in one position with your legs twisted in weird ways or your back bent forward so you can't really support yourself or whatever, stocks were considered to be low-key torture. And that's what they did. They put them in a position where they would have been like knotted up and uncomfortable and eventually in significant pain. This was a like further punishment that they received, which, as Romans, they shouldn't have. Um, but... There's my axe again. We're going to jump back to Matthew. So the response, by the way, the response to summarize the book of Acts. We are done with Acts. That is our last bit of verses there. Um, But the response was miracle. These guys are costing us money. Get them out of here. Everybody got it? So we jump back to Matthew. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. The phrase begged him, in Matthew, you lose something by it being in English. Because it's the exact same thing that the demon said to Jesus. 
And Paul did it on purpose because his point is these guys cared more about their finances. They cared more about their thing than they did about the miracle. In the same way that the slave owner cared more about their money than they did about the miracle that took place. Um, I'm going to read another one. Because these are both examples of Gentiles, those naughty, non-Jewish people. But there's this great story in actually several of the Gospels, but like we're going to read it from John today. Um, There's this great story where Jesus brings Lazarus back to life. He's been dead three days. He's been buried. He goes to the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. He was not resurrected, by the way. That's sometimes said, but it's not proper. It would be risen from the dead or resuscitated because they're different words. They mean different things. He resuscitated Lazarus and news of it because it's just over the hill away from Jerusalem, right? Like the capital where the temple is and the religious authority and all that. And so the, the news of this travels to Jerusalem and these guys who are in charge have been hearing about Jesus and they're like, this is a problem. This guy is going to make problems. He's going to make problems and maybe there'll be another rebellion. Maybe it'll splash back on us. This is not okay. And so they're discussing and they decide, hey, let's just go ahead and kill him. And they start discussing killing him. What are they not discussing? He brought someone back to life, right? He performed a miracle. But they're not talking about that. They're talking about he's going to be a problem. He is a threat to our power. He is a threat to our authority. He is a threat to our comfort. And so... Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Do you not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish? He did not say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation but also for the scattered children of Israel to bring them together and make them one. So from that day, they plotted to take his life. Now, oh my gosh, that's a lot of stuff. By the way, I want to point out again, parallels to this story over and over again. And the one super common thing in all of it is, first off, the demons say, go away, right? Get, get away from us. We don't like you. But so do the people. Now, what are, the, what are the principles behind this? So we've talked about the ideas. This is what the text has given us. Um, now the principles. So what are the ideas that make these things true? Like, what are the ideas that are truth in it? First off, preaching the gospel to more and more of the pagan world, like the opposition that they faced grew, right? But they had operation, opposition in the Jewish world. The Jewish people rebelled against them. They pushed them back. They said, hey, we don't want you here. Get away. You're creating problems. Hey, you're going to mess up our deal. Or, hey, aren't you on our team? Like 90% of the questions that people asked Jesus trying to trick him were, can you be on my team? Can you be a Pharisee with the rest of us? Can you be a Sadducee like the rest of us? Or, because you won't be on our team, let's get you thrown out. Um, Like a lot of what happens around Jesus is people trying to preserve their authority, their power, their like prestige, their honor. And it is never about Jesus. And when he leaves, like when the gospel goes out into the world, the opposition is often either from the Jewish people because they're like, hey, this like makes problems for us. Or it's from the world saying, hey, this is creating problems for us. 
They ignore the miracles. They ignore things that happen that are amazing. They ignore people who are broken and healed or dead and brought back. They ignore all of that stuff because the one God in the middle of all of it is me. And the Jews and the Gentiles have that in common in the scriptures. And almost nothing has changed because, um, honestly, because we all like being God. We all like deciding what's right and wrong for us. We all decide what's best for us. We want to eat the whipped cream and nothing else. Give me the easy part. Give me the fun part. Opposition was sometimes related to the message or its merits, right? Like is my second important principle there. So sometimes it's about the message. But as often, it's about their own stuff. If you want to write that down, that's huge. Because one of the places we see the church struggle today is when we get to this weird place that when, when what I hold valuable contradicts the gospel, and I have to make a choice between the two, what do I pick? Me. Right? That's why churches very rarely split over doctrinal issues. They never split over arguing about scripture or anything else. They split over carpet color or who gets to be on what committee or whether or not the piano will be the primary instrument because I like that better and why aren't we using this book and not that and everything else. Like these crazy things because us being God ends up being the center of so much of the sin that we experience. And it's right next to the demons who do the same thing. Like everyone who is in rebellion against God will choose themselves as God every time. So when the scriptures say, love my wife, love my children, like Jesus loved us, I'm supposed to like pour out myself and die for them and be humble in my service. But I often am kind of selfish, right? I am. It's fun being selfish, right? It's fun getting my way. But it's not Christ-like. In the world, we see it when the church says, this is how God calls us to live, and this is how we are going to live. And folks get angry about it. When we say there is absolute truth, and folks get angry about it. Um, Now, here's where this gets tricky, because it's really easy, it's really easy to make our stuff into gospel stuff. So my politics is gospel. My politics is not gospel. Politics is its own thing. Gospel is who I am. It is how I am saved because Jesus died. That one man died for the world. He poured out his blood because I can't overcome my own sins. And so I follow Christ and I try to become more like Christ because I am forgiven because he was punished on my behalf. Believers will face trial and difficulty for preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. That will happen. And about 10% of that is going to be outside of you. And about 90% of it is going to be in you. You know why? Because our sinful nature will rebel against the gospel. And we will fight it out. And we feel guilty or shamed or frustrated or overwhelmed. Or will you know, say, well, but I don't want to obey there. Anybody have those areas? I only want the whipped cream. But the substance of the gospel is more. So a couple of application. I'm going to do these kind of quick. Um, never, ever, ever, ever excuse the gospel as an excuse to be a jerk. Everybody with me? Because I know folks who will say, well, this is me just speaking the truth of Jesus. 
and now I'm going to be a jerk. Nope. That's, that's confusing me with Jesus. I am not God. I don't get to be a jerk. I speak the truth in love, calling people to repentance. I don't kick them. I don't stab them. I don't denounce them. I don't make myself into a, like, oh, look at how holy I am and how bad they are. That is not what I am talking about. And persecution, when that happens, is a reward unto itself because you deserve it. Not because you're preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel is, God loves you so much, he would do anything to redeem you. He sent his only son to die for you. And yeah, like there are areas where you sin, and there are areas where you struggle, but God will forgive you. And you may not like that that's the truth of it, but it is the truth. And I will still love you, and I will still love those guys. We often get it confused. We think, well, I can treat people like crap, and that is Jesus. It is not. In fact, speaking the truth in love is a side effect of becoming more Christ-like. Reaching people for Jesus is like the ultimate, like the ultimate destination for walking with Christ. The goal is not to offend people, ever. It is a side effect of speaking the truth. But we do it in love, and we do it um, in mercy, and we serve, and we are humble. And if we fail those things, we've picked a new God. So, number two here, my second application, we must be willing to experience discomfort for the gospel of Jesus, sometimes from the outside, often from the inside. There are times I'm going to have to be uncomfortable as a part of following Jesus. There are times that I'm going to have to look bad, or I'm going to have to be embarrassed, or I'm going to have to step away and say, look, I I can't agree with this, I can't be a part of it. There are times I need to like do with less so I can serve other people. That was a line from uh, John Calvin. We're not, I, I'm not trying to be Calvinist. Don't hear me doing this. John Calvin said one of the main reasons that we should fast, or one of, not the only reason we should fast, one of the main reasons we should fast is to save money to give to other people. And so we should be uncomfortable in an effort to have money that we can use to bless others. That's uncomfortable. We have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing to talk about Jesus. We have to be willing to say, yeah, I'm not down with that. We have to be willing to be different. Um, the people in the powers of this world, uh, demons and like otherwise, uh, they'll fight the gospel. They will. And they'll do it for their own reasons. Um, But as much as I hate to say it, a lot of times that happens in the church. We fight the gospel, and we do it for our own reasons. We we fight the truth that salvation is free for those who come to Christ and say, I have sinned, I'm failed, I'm broken, please forgive me. And then they live new and carry fruit and keeping with the salvation and everything else like like it calls us to this new life everything about it like but it is a free gift that we get Um, and within the church within ourselves we'll fight that Um, the world will fight it we'll fight it I know that it's really popular right now to talk about culture war and to look at schools and say, oh, you know what they're doing over in the school? You know what they're doing in Canada? You know what they're doing in the government? But the truth is, if I'm not following Jesus and living Christ-like, it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. The gospel needs to be preached to me, and I need to preach it to me on a daily basis. So finally, last one. Sometimes those difficulties you experience, they have a purpose. I know that's awful. I'm not saying they're good. I'm not saying you should jump up and down and say, yippee, right? 
I think Justin Martyr uh, gives the perfect example of what not to do when his father was arrested and was going to be taken off and be executed, and he was going to abandon his mother alone to run after and be executed too. And she hid his clothes, and he wouldn't go out naked. And that's how he didn't get killed. Isn't that crazy? And you look at it, and it's like, well, why would you do that? Well, he wanted to be martyred for Jesus, except that his point was to preach the gospel for Jesus. His point was to take care of his family and to be Christ to the world around him. Actually, we have books because of him that we wouldn't have otherwise. We have all kinds of stuff that he has given us had he run off. Like, like we don't celebrate pain. We don't run into it and say, please, hurt me, hurt me. That's not it. But when we encounter difficulty, sometimes we can be taught by it. When people mock us for what we believe or when we feel guilt over our like bad choices, over our wicked choices, like when we have those things, it drives us to become something different. In the same way that like I hate getting up in the morning and working out and I am way off that habit and it's awful. But I've discovered the more comfortable I am being uncomfortable in those moments, the better person I am. Does that make sense? Like learning to suffer for the gospel, learning to endure long, boring sermons, learning to, <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, <laughs> learning to learning to suffer for the name of Jesus draws us closer to Him. Learning to be humble in different moments helps us be humble when our front door closes and we're talking to our wife and kids and nobody sees it. That is how you learn these things. You follow Jesus, and it is training. And difficulty, suffering, you know, these things can train us. Does that mean they're good? No. Does that mean Christians shouldn't take antidepressant? Anybody who tells you that is wrong and, like, they've got their own God they're worshiping. Um, Does that mean that Christians don't do counseling? No. Sometimes we need help from each other. It means that sometimes difficulty helps us grow. I've got a few people in this room I could point to, and I'm not going to do it this morning. But there are a lot of people in this room who have gone through awful hardship in their lifetime, and they become more and more like Jesus because of it. And I'm in awe of those people every time I talk to them. I wish I was more like them. Um, so my challenge for you this week is to look into your heart, look into your mind, look into your life, and ask yourself, like, coming back around to my, my clown analogy, um, when I hear that I need to be different, when I hear that the world and my own sinful nature will rebel, do I look at it like the clown and try to ignore it? Do I turn up my radio or turn on the TV or grab up my phone so I don't have to think about it? Or do I pursue it legitimately? When I hear folks or I encounter folks who need to hear the gospel, do I do it? Do I share the gospel? Do I even just love them and spend time with them, showing grace to them? Or do I choose my own idols? Because God calls us to be something very specific. He calls us to not be people who hear the word and believe it, but people who hear, believe, and do. And so look in your heart. Like, are you uncomfortable with me today? Not because I've went long, but because words hit you in weird places. And if so, what are you going to do about it? Are you struggling in an area and then not turning to God and say, God, please teach me through this, but make it end soon? Right? Like everything we're supposed to be is about the gospel. Everything we're supposed to be is about Jesus. Everything we're supposed to be is about loving our children, loving our families, becoming the person God designed us to be. And my call to you is to answer that. Not because you're annoyed with a little girl across the street, but because Christ calls us to be him. Let's pray and I'll finish up.
What, we have communion today? No, we don't have communion. Oh, my gosh. I would have ended 20 minutes ago if we had... Uh, Josh, you want to let the rose go for me? Because I asked you to. Um, Perhaps communion is perfect for today.